Garish Nation, we are officially in purgatory. The waning days of August, college football is just a mere days away, and as Notre Dame fans leaning into our Catholic traditions, we must wait just a little bit longer in purgatory before the joy of Notre Dame football finally returns to our lives. I, I have one comment on that, Brett, and from a Catholic imagery standpoint, that is just too much sauce. I know we went, I know we went to a Catholic university, but we're a football podcast. We, uh, we can't be, we can't be leaning into the Catholicism too hard here. We gotta take a step back and focus on the football. But I appreciate, at the end of the day, I appreciate the passion. Oh, oh come on. N- Notre Dame, as a fan, like being a Notre Dame fan is a religion. It checks all the boxes. Cult following, agony, suffering, hopeless prayers, miracles. I'm, I'm leaning in. All right. I mean, I can't blame you for that. I do agree with you. It is like a religion. The passion is illogical at times for me. I will wonder why I get so swept up and I'm so emotional about a loss when it actually does not affect my daily life at all. It doesn't affect my job. Sometimes I'm more excited about, I mean, oftentimes I'm more excited about stuff that happens with Notre Dame football than I am about stuff that happens in my personal life. But that's part of being a fan. It is like a religion. It's just something that a lot of emotion is involved in, something that just uh, you care about a ton at all times, especially when you're living and dying with the team throughout the season. Now, anyway, August is clearly getting to us. We're really close. Let's get back to the show. Heck, we this was a bit of a tangent. We haven't even started the show, so let's go ahead and do that. All right. On to today's show, we've got a couple segments for you. We're going to start off with the preview of this year's Notre Dame defense. You can go back and check out our last episode for our take on the Notre Dame offense. And then we're going to do a review of sorts on the Netflix documentary that just came out on the Manti Teo catfishing saga called Untold, The Girlfriend Who Never Existed. Before we dive into the show, we're going to spend just a minute each week reminding our returning listeners and all our new listeners how we approach Gyrish Talk. Our mantra is glass half full data analytics. We've repeated this on the last few shows, and we will continue to remind our listeners so anyone new can get a feel for how we approach college football. We're going to go deep into analytics, predict, particularly predictive analytics, that better articulate what is really going on in the football program or what really drove certain results on the field. Yeah, a great example of our approach is really in these roster previews. We'll focus on a player's recruiting rankings as a proxy for raw talent potential on pro football focus grades from prior years to benchmark their performance and sort of set the floor for how good we can expect a player to be or returning production for position group. Look at how much of the roster is back together, which oftentimes has a very strong correlation for future success. But importantly, all those factors need to be understood in tandem, right? So Alabama might have low returning production, But if they're bringing in a bunch of five stars, even if they haven't started before, that can work out really well just on the talent. And on the flip side, BYU's offense might return everyone, but it's mostly three stars. So similarly, there might be a different recipe for success for how you get there. So understanding all of those things in tandem is important. All great examples, Brett. Um, And our other mantra is positivity. So this is not Colin Coward. This is not Stephen A. Smith shouting to the rooftops. By the way, Colin Coward... Today, I think it was today, he said that he put Notre Dame as number 25 in his list of the top 25 teams. So in terms of hot takes, that's a hot take right there. Kind of a low-hanging fruit in the college football world, just putting Notre Dame lower ranked than they should be. But as for us, we're always going to look for the optimistic spin, particularly for the players. We love cheering for Notre Dame. And that begins with supporting these kids that we just truly enjoy rooting for on Saturdays. And so we've got a big belief that being a true college football fan requires positivity. 
Okay, last thing before we dive into the show today. If you're listening to this show, please go leave us a review, whether it's on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast. Please subscribe to the show. Get those automatic downloads. Go to your phone each week. Tell a friend. Tell your family. Uh, please spread the word. We're really excited about year two of the podcast. Really view this as a big growth year for Gyrish Talk. And so that means we need you, our listeners, to help us continue to grow and spread the word. And with that, let's dive into the defense. You're five feet nothing, a hundred and nothing, and you got hardly a speck of athletic ability. And you hung in with the best college football team in the land for two years. The defensive preview. So similar to the last couple of episodes, we're going to alternate asking each other questions. The other one of us will respond first, and then we'll get a chance for a rebuttal. So, Mike, opening things up. What's the recipe for how this defense gets back to a top 20 caliber, similar to where they've been the last few years? Great question. I think to answer that, we need to also look at what our defense has done the last five years for some perspective. So the last five years, the recipe has been controlling the line of scrimmage and keeping teams off schedule. That shouldn't be surprising to anyone who's watched the team closely. Our defensive line has been exceptional the last the last few years. So going even further back for, for more reference, from 2013 to 2016, the success rate for our defense was 42 to 45% each year. For Just for an explanation on what success rate is, as a reminder, that's when the offense is converting 50% of the yards on first down, 70% of the yards on second down, and then converting on third or fourth down. And essentially, if you're an offense, if you're around 45%, that's actually pretty good. If you're letting the opposing offense convert 45% of the time, that's actually not very good. So we were generally in those seasons, in the bottom half of the country. So teams were able to steadily move the ball on us. However, since 2017, the success rate has been about 39% every year, and that's around a top 25 level. At that level, it's it's difficult for teams to consistently move the ball, and the way that they can make up for it is explosiveness, so just big plays. And if you're limiting the explosiveness and you're keeping the success rate down, your defense is in a really good spot, and they're not going to be able to move on you. So like I said, 39%, that's around top 25, 44%. That's right around 80th in the country. So that kind of gives you some idea of, of how big of a, a difference that makes, even just that 5%. And this is a podcast. We don't like to over be overly negative, as, as we said in our intro, but I think it really does show the Brian Van Gorder effect. We were much closer to that 45% when he was coaching. The defense typically was not doing a very good job of, of, of uh, shutting down opposing offenses. But then you get more into the Elko, Clark, Lee, Marcus Freeman era, and then that flips a little bit. And then our, all of a sudden we're more consistently not allowing teams to get ahead on yards, not allowing teams to move. So that's been the recipe that we've had over the last five years. It's been controlling the line of scrimmage, not allowing teams to consistently have successful plays against us. But that's only one element. Another element, so if you're giving up more success, you can make up for that with the havoc rate. And the havoc rate, that's essentially the percentage of plays where you get a sack, where you get an interception, where you get a fumble, where you bat a pass, basically just highly disruptive plays. So if you're letting the opposing offense convert a bunch of yards on you, but if you're getting a lot of interceptions, a lot of sacks, you can make up for that and still be a successful a successful defense. Last year, we were middle of the pack. So we weren't, that wasn't an area we were relying on quite as much. We were relying a little bit more on on that success rate is what we were doing. In, in 2020, we were, we were fifth. That was, uh, that was a year where we actually were very disruptive. And it's worth noting that Marcus Freeman at Cincinnati was 14th. So and that was a that was a tenet of his defenses in Cincinnati. Marcus Freeman's defenses were highly disruptive. They had a lot of interceptions. They created a lot of chaos 
basically, yeah, exactly. They just created a lot of situations where the offense would make mistakes and they were able to capitalize them. So you combine all this, we were pretty good at uh, keeping the success rate down. Didn't generate a ton of havoc, which... I th- you know that's an element that can put your your defense over the top and uh, to be elite. But you combine you combine that, and if you look at where we were in uh, 2020, we were 11th in SP plus defense, which is good. That's obviously that's like near top 10 level, and then 15th in 2021. I, I think another point to make here is that there is a trade off between <clears throat> excuse me success rate and havoc. It is difficult to do both. Generally, defenses are either going to be a little bit more aggressive or they're going to be a little bit more conservative, more bend but don't break. So if you're more bended and don't break, you're kind of conceding these havoc plays a bit. You're not going to be as aggressive. You're not going to be jumping passes. You're not going to be going as aggressively with blitzes. So your havoc rate's not going to be as high. You can also flip it the other way where you concede more successful plays, but then you're more aggressive so you can get more picks, sacks, etc. So it generally is a trade-off. However, there are sometimes defenses that can do both. And when defenses can do both, that's when you when you have something really, really special. Yeah, I think you really hit on the recipe there to just kind of pull it back together. This is a defense the last couple of years that has largely been about keeping teams off schedule, keeping that success rate down, less about these big havoc plays. Although we've seen that in Marcus Freeman's past, we've seen that in Notre Dame's past. And so I think the recipe to go from a top 15 defense to a top 10 defense is maintaining that off schedule nature of our defense while generating more plays, generating more turnovers. I think last year the team leader in interceptions was three picks by Kyle Hamilton, who only played a few games. So other than that, you know, there weren't big turnover creators. Um, and so it's, it's probably more disruption is how this team builds on its, its base. The other thing that I'd highlight is just the experience on this side of the ball. So all of the starters this year will be upperclassmen. We are returning 75% of the snaps or higher at both D-line, linebacker, and secondary. So you're going to see a very veteran, knowledgeable defense. Um, Marcus Freeman is obviously back as the head coach. So there's some continuity there, although we do bring in new defensive coordinator Al Golden, uh, who is a position coach in the NFL, back in the day head coach for the Miami Hurricanes. So um, that's definitely um, you know one difference there but otherwise a lot of this band is back together a lot of the consistency is there and so i think experience on top of what we saw last year in keeping teams off schedule is really going to be the recipe for success definitely and then the final point i'll add is that there is some high-end talent potentially in a couple position groups at defensive line and then also in the secondary we'll, we'll dive into that more but there have been some mock drafts that have put a few of our players in the first round so you combine that with their experience and i think i think overall it's a, it's a favorable outlook with the with the band coming back together, a lot of experience, and then that experience also being high in talent. Now, moving on to the next question, we hinted at this already. It appears that the defensive line is the strongest unit, maybe on either side of the ball, which has often been the case over the last handful of years. So, Brett, my question to you is how special exactly is this defensive line? It's interesting that, you know, we've got a potential All-American in Isaiah Foskey, um, Although I think he might be, I don't want to say overrated, but maybe getting a little too much hype from Notre Dame fans. So last year he had a pro football focus grade of 79. That's a very high end starter. We, we usually talk about in pro football focus grades, if you start getting into the 80s or right around 80, that's kind of the threshold for NFL caliber. But that's not all American status. And he's actually a preseason all American. And I think in big part, 
it's because he had 10 sacks last year. Um, and that, that's a ton. I think it was like top five in Notre Dame history. And so, yes, that's a great stat, but it might be a little bit misleading. For example, he had 10 sacks, but he only had 14 hurries. And that means on five and a half percent, about 5% of pass rushes, was he generating a hurry? Now, sure, he was facing a lot of double teams. Um, a lot of offenses were focused on slowing down Isaiah Foskey, but a 5% hurry rate on pass rushes for defensive linemen was only in the 40th percentile. Um, just as one comparison, Will Anderson at Alabama, probably the best defensive player in the country, and he saw more double teams than anyone. Will Anderson had a hurry rate of 12% compared to Isaiah Foskey's 5.5%. Now, Foskey, again, he still got home. He got 10 sacks. He forced five fumbles last year. Those fumbles force was actually tied for second in the country. So clearly some big stats, but some of the advanced metrics, I'm not sure how um, elite Isaiah truly is. I think he needs to demonstrate more consistent pressure this year to really earn kind of that all-American status. I think the real story of what makes this group special, and maybe it's not a top five defensive line in the country, but definitely top 20 defensive line in the country, is just the depth. You're going to see nine guys rotating on defensive line. Um, Isaiah Foskey, the Adam Alola brothers, Jacob Lacey, Chris Smith, a big, thick nose guard transfer from Harvard, um, Nana Osafa Mensa, Howard Cross, Jordan Batello, Riley Mills, and they're freaking good. Um, six of those guys had pro football focus grades of 70 or higher last year. If you're in the 70s, that basically means you're a solid to above average starter at the college level. So... That's without even talking about big jumps we expect to see from Jordan Botello and Riley Mills, who are really underclassmen last year. So I think it's the depth of this rotation that really makes the defensive line, you know, one of the deepest units probably on the entire Notre Dame roster on either side of the football. Um, in some other areas, we've, we've talked about maybe some depth issues, say at wide receiver, we'll get to in a little bit in the secondary. Um, and then the other thing is, I think there's some young guys that are on the brink of breaking out. So I talked about Isaiah Foskey having a 5.5% hurry rate. Well, Jordan Batellas was 11%. Riley Mills was 10%. So those guys maybe weren't big sack totals last year, but they get after the quarterback and I think have some real potential um, to really step up and elevate this defensive line. Definitely. And I think point with Foskey, I think the data you mentioned is very helpful. So my takeaway is that he has flashed a lot of potential and a lot of that upside to NFL scouts. They've seen it clearly. He's in, he's being projected in the first round, but he hasn't quite hasn't quite matched his production yet. But there is the expectation that hopefully he can do that this year. So we don't want to assume that it's going to happen because we all know how that can go sometimes. But I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's crazy to expect that he could take that jump, or even that it's likely. Um, I don't think it's crazy to think that it's likely that it could happen. So, anyways, overall, feel great about the defensive line. Moving on to our next question, Mike. Um, what unit gives you more concern, linebacker or secondary? And I say that from the perspective, I think we feel good about both units, but w which one keeps you up at night more than the other? You're right. I do feel good about both for different reasons. I think... Taking a step back, I think secondary gives me a little bit more pause for concern just because I don't think we have quite the same depth there that we have at the linebacker position. So I'll, I'm going to go dive in a little bit here more on the secondary. 
So I think the unit is strong. They they did well last year. I thought the coverage was overall very solid, despite what most fans in the media said. Obviously, the loss against Oklahoma State, that was a big blemish on their part. But other than that, and you can't just completely throw that aside because that was, that was a pretty big moment. But other than that, I think they were generally pretty good. We played a lot of really good receivers, Drake London, Josh Downs, among others. If you look at the pro football focus grade, our coverage ranks 16th in the country. That's a pretty high level. DJ Brown, Cam Hart, Houston Griffith, Raymond Henderson, they all had coverage grades above 75. So that's all, for context, above 75, that's all at a high-end uh, college starter level. Clarence Lewis and Tarek, uh, Tarek Bracey, they were a little bit more average. But overall, we had plenty of guys in that position group who were playing at a high level from a coverage standpoint. Now, replacing Kyle Hamilton is tough. But as I mentioned, he wasn't even playing for essentially half of last year. So we, we, we've kind of already been dealing with that. So it's, I would say well, that I'm looking at this group, it's hard to find a, a weak link. I'm not saying that Clarence Lewis or Raymond Henderson are all Americans. Certainly Clarence Lewis was exposed against Oklahoma State. But all our guys had very, very solid uh, pro football focus grades, most in, in at least in the mid to high 60s. So at least starter level as sophomores with a chance to jump up. And, and, and in this instance, I'm talking about Clarence Lewis and, and Raymond Henderson. But what does give me concern, as I mentioned, is the depth at cornerback and, and the overall talent. We do have three experienced corners, Bracey Hart. No, I'm blanking on the other one. Bracey Hart and uh, Lewis. Tariq, Bracey, Clarence Lewis, and Cam Hart, yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, so if one cornerback gets injured, it's not potentially not a great situation. Jaden Mickey or Jaden Bellamy. Mickey's been getting a lot of praise in camp. Apparently since he showed up in the spring, he's he's turned a lot of heads, and he's continued doing that in the fall camp. It's possible he could he could beat Bracey for, for a job at nickel, but... Overall, not ideal to be relying on a true freshman. Apparently, freshman Benjamin Morrison, he appears to be a hit as well. It seems like he's going to be good. But again, he's also a true freshman. So if one of these experienced corners takes a hit, we might be relying on some players that are, are very new to the program. And they're, they're talented. I'm sure they're going to be good down the line. But you're going to have those freshman mistakes. So not an ideal position to be in. And as I mentioned, we always take a look at the, at the talent from a recruiting standpoint because that gives you some, I, some idea on the upside. So outside of Mickey... Zero top 300 recruits. Our predicted starters have recruiting rankings of 644, 616, 1,005, and 727. None in the top 600. Although, actually, I think Benjamin, not a starter, Benjamin Morrison was around a top 300 recruit. But he's not someone who we expect, hopefully, to be getting a lot of playing time because he's new. But a very different, very different picture from our offensive line and defensive line where we have a ton of four-star, high-end four-star recruits. As we said before, the offensive and defensive line... If you recruit well at those positions, you develop them well, that can help you consistently be in the top 25. You can control you can control the pace of the game. You can bully teams. You can physically dominate them. But if you really want to win a national championship, you have to have those elite corners and receivers and, and quarterback, obviously, too. If you don't have that, it's really hard to get to that next level. And that's, that's generally been what separated us from the Bamas of the world, the Ohio States of the world. These teams have some of the best skill position players in the country, and they continue to go on to the NFL in, in large numbers. So we clearly still have a talent gap here. A couple younger players have slightly better recruiting pedigrees. So hopefully, and it seems like some of them are going to be hit. So there's, there's some reason for optimism. And I think the starters that we have right now, they should be good, assuming that they, and assuming that they stay healthy, I think we're okay. But if we, if we start getting injuries, that's where it gets a little bit dicey. Now, one person who doesn't have that elite recruiting pedigree, but has actually shown some of that talent that the NFL likes is Cam Hart. And he's someone who, 
as I mentioned, great physical tools. He's long. He has good size. He's athletic. He has good speed. He hasn't put it all together yet. There were moments last year where he flashed and he looked really good, but he hasn't consistently put it together. But there are a lot of scouts, a lot of people in the NFL circles who are watching him to see if he can make that step. If he has a good year, I wouldn't be surprised to see him work his way into an earlier uh, NFL draft pick. Yeah, I, I think you've hit on a lot of great points for the secondary where, you know, maybe not the most elite talent ever, but some guys who've started to really perform well. So you feel good about starters like Cam Hart. You get really nervous who's behind them on the two deep. The one big X factor that we've alluded to is Brandon Joseph. He was an All-American as a freshman at Northwestern and now comes to Notre Dame with two years of eligibility left. And it's a real night and day difference. So he was an All-American as a freshman, six interceptions, um, opposing teams when he was the primary defender only had a 33% completion percentage against him, which is one of the best in the country. And he graded out in the mid-80s, so really, really elite um, safety. His sophomore year, last year, completely different story. He graded out in the low 60s, which is kind of a average to below average starter. That completion percentage went from 33%, which is ridiculously good, to 81%, which is ridiculously bad. Now, I... That that also corresponded with Northwestern just getting a lot worse around him. So I think he was really the victim of just playing on a much, much, much worse defense his sophomore year compared to his freshman year. So if you surround him with the talent at Notre Dame, the optimist would say he'll get back to where he is uh, or where he was as a freshman. It's why a lot of NFL scouts have him projected as a first-round draft pick. That's the real X factor if you want to talk about making up for – um you know, maybe a lack of recruiting talent in the secondary, but that's going to require a really big jump. I also wanted to touch on linebackers a little bit. I agree with you. I think this is a more solid unit than the um, secondary with maybe one or two caveats. So first off, 75% of the snaps are back, pretty much everyone but Drew White. And there's a very credible two deep. So th- this is a very deep group. If you look at the depth chart, You've got J.D. Bertrand, Jack Kaiser, and Maris Luafau starting. And then behind them, you've got Bo Bauer, uh, sixth-year uh, grad senior, grad student, Prince Colley, highly touted four-star sophomore. And Jordan Battelle has been cross-training a defensive end in Rover, so he, he can step in there too. And so you feel really, really good. I mean, Jack Kaiser, what a revelation. He graded out at, at uh, 80 on Pro Football Focus. That was the highest grade in the front seven. His missed tackle rate, I love this stat for linebackers. When they're in a position to make a tackle, how many times do they miss the tackle? His missed tackle rate was 3%. That was third best in the country out of nearly 400 linebackers with at least 20 tackles. So pumped about Jack Kaiser. There's maybe two issues to just briefly hit on with the linebackers if if you're going to have a concern here. One, there's two big unknowns. Maris Luafau was probably the most talked about defensive player in camp a year ago, broke his ankle, didn't play the entire season. So he's back, he's healthy, but we've never seen him on the field. And similarly, Prince Colley, highly touted freshman linebacker, but didn't really play last year. Now he's a sophomore. Is he going to step up? The other is I think the weakest starter on the roster, at least from a grades perspective, is J.D. Bertrand. He had a pro football focus grade of 57 last year. Now, he also led the team in tackles. So another example where, you know, kind of ESPN and NBC stats like, 
leads the team in tackles. He must be great. Well, if you double click on it, he led the team in tackles because he kept getting picked on by opposing offenses. They just kept going after him. Um, in fact, he gave up a completion percentage of 90% when he was in coverage. He, he struggled. However, he was really thrust into a starting role because of injuries. And there was no one behind him last year on the depth chart, like, like there will be this year. So generally last year, we saw him struggle later in games. He just looked gassed in the second half of the season. So hopefully if he doesn't need as high of a snap count this year, um, hopefully if he gets another year of conditioning, he makes a really big jump. But I do think it's important to note if you're kind of going to follow a weak link theory, um, that's just another unknown at the linebacker group. But overall, I think that unit is in better shape, particularly with better depth than the secondary. Yeah, no, I think you hit some big points here. I think this unit is a high floor group and there is some potential for big upside. So Maris Leofau, he was supposed to be a star last year before he got hurt. If that actually happens, then that high floor unit becomes, uh, they're, they're hitting a high ceiling as well, potentially. And so I'm with you. I think it's, this is, this is the group that I, I feel more confident about. Whereas, whereas the secondary, they definitely have upside. For example, Brand Joseph is his advertised. If Cam Hart takes a big step, that could be a really, really good unit. It's just with the depth issues that we talked about with them, I think their floor is a lot lower. Um, so I think we're in agreement here. Both both units could be very exceptional units, but the linebacker unit just has a much higher floor, and I and I feel better uh, about it for that reason. Now, definitely moving on. Moving on to the next question: Who is a, a new starter or someone not starting that's primed to break out this year? Yeah, great question. Um, as I prepped for this show, I wrote down five names. I'll maybe start. If you go to last week's episode, we asked the same question about the offense. On the offense, we're going to have six sophomores starting. So half of the starters are going to be underclassmen. Um, and depending on the Jared Patterson situation, you, you can maybe throw Rocco Spindler or Andrew Christoffage into that group too. But um, six underclassmen starting an offense, that's not the case on... Um, the defensive side of the ball. So my answer is probably Riley Mills or Jordan Patella, who both were role players last year. They'll be starting this year, so new starters, but they are juniors, been in the program a while. And I'm really going to go back to what I said earlier, where you know they led the team last year with a 10% hurry rate, an 11% hurry rate. They were both high-end four-stars. Riley Mills was number 159 recruit in his class. Jordan Botello, number 120. So two of the better recruits on the defensive side of the ball. I think that gives them a lot of um, potential. And and I will say, you know, their overall defensive grades last year were in the 60s. So you, you, we're truly talking about someone elevating in a breakout way, right? The, these aren't guys that were, you know, an 80 pro football focus grade and were looking like, you know, NFL guys. They were looking like underclassmen who had all the potential in the world, but were maybe missing assignments or weren't consistent or, you know, one reason or another weren't having breakout years. I think both those guys now as juniors are primed in a big way um, to step up and, and play a much, much bigger role on this team. Despite, I'm looking, Battelle only had one sack last year. Riley Mills had three. So again, neither of these guys had huge years last year. Um, the only other thing I'd say is I think a lot of people want to hear about Prince Collie. And I think a lot of people were, you know, on Brian Kelly of how is this highly touted linebacker not seeing the field or not getting ready or, you know, not ready to contribute last year. It's interesting. Prince Collie's recruiting ranking was number 145. So, 
solid four star for sure. Top 200 recruit in his class, top 150 recruit in his class. But everyone was making him out to be the next Jalen Smith or Manti Teo. And I think they got to pump, you know, fans need to pump the brakes a little bit on Prince Golly. Jalen Smith was the number two recruit in the entire country. Manti Teo was the number four recruit in the entire country. So they were about as close as you can get to can't miss five stars. That's not Prince Golly. He's a great talent, high potential. Think he's going to have a really, really long career, you know, successful career at Notre Dame. But I think we need to pump the brakes a little bit that just because he was maybe the kind of shiny new toy, the best recruit in his class for Notre Dame, I think the hype train really got behind him and everyone was like, well, why is he not playing? I just don't necessarily see him ready to take on a starter's role this year. And I think he's still in development, but has a chance to you know contribute this year as a role player. So he might be a year away. Yeah, I agree. I think he's someone who... Will end up being a good player for us. He'll probably get some good reps this year, but it's it's a deep position with a lot of solid options. So who knows? I mean, if he if he keeps improving, maybe by the end of the year, he's just one of those people you can't keep off the field. We'll see if we get there. But yeah, I think he's not. He definitely was not one of those guys who's just going to come in and just like like Jalen Smith didn't immediately make an impact. So that I, I think that expectation was unrealistic. I'm going to just mention a couple other names here. So Jalen Sneed, five star recruit. He's a true freshman this year. He apparently, I think in the spring, he, the game was a little, I think the college game was a bit of an adjustment for him. Uh, and he's someone who, who still should have been in high school, frankly, at that time as an early enrollee. But apparently in the fall now, the game has, has slowed down and he's actually looking quite a bit better. So that's an encouraging sign for, for one of our top recruits in, in, in recent memory. So I don't know that he's going to get a lot of playing time this year. Again, it's a deep position. But it's good to see that one of the, the highly touted recruits is, is, is flashing that potential that made him such a big recruit. And then someone else that we've mentioned quite a bit, Jaden Mickey. Now, he is someone who I think is actually going to get some, some playing time. He's apparently been playing at a level where it's going to be hard to keep him off the field. And it also comes at a position, as we mentioned, that doesn't have a ton of depth. So I think it's likely we'll be seeing a lot of him this year. Again, ideally, you don't want to be relying on, 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 on freshmen like this for your defense. But... He is someone who is, has been impressing, and I, I think he probably will perform fine if he gets in. One other name I'll just mention is Benjamin Morrison, who I, who I also flagged, who is a another freshman. Now, I think he's a little less likely than, than Mickey to play, but again, someone who is at a position that doesn't have a lot of depth. Apparently, he's already passed a bunch of players who are older than him on the depth chart. He's, he's not at the level where he's, where he's starting, obviously, but if you have a few injuries, you know, he might get in. Or if he keeps improving, he might be someone that we're able to rely on a bit more uh, from a depth standpoint. Yeah, I think think those are definitely guys, you know, maybe similar to Prince Kali. Hopefully, knock on wood, you'd like to see them develop into role players this year. Maybe a little bit harder to see them, you know, really step up as like a bona fide starter breakout player this year. But definitely a lot of potential in those guys. Going to our last question. Um What's a good goal for the defense's SP plus by year end? And again, just for our listeners as a reminder on what SP plus is, that is looking at um, efficiency ratings on a play-by-play basis um, adjusted for your opposing team. So if you're playing a harder team, um, it, it factors that in and adjusting for tempo. And so it really measures kind of the expected points allowed by a defense against an average offense. Last year, we were number 15. 
We've kind of consistently been around top 20 in the last really post Brian Van Gorder era. And so Mike, what do you think is a good goal for this team this year? You mentioned this was a very good defense last year. And as we called out, that was with Kyle Hamilton out for most of the year. And, and we filled, we're, we're going to see how Brandon Joseph does, but we potentially filled all American Kyle Hamilton with someone who has the potential to also play at an all American level. There's some issues with mentioned with depth. That's some, some areas of risk, but overall, you have a very good defense coming back. The band is largely back together. I don't see any major gaps anywhere. We have potential for high-end NFL talent, first-round NFL talent. You put all that together, and for me, my expectations are top 10, and I don't think that's unreasonable. Obviously, anything could happen. We could have a lot of injuries, but there just aren't really many weaknesses here. We mentioned there are a couple. We have a little. We have some depth issues in the secondary, but beyond that, you know, we also have some new coaches, I guess, but there, there are just too many pieces here. There's, too, like I said, too much experience, too much talent for us to to expect anything less than than top ten uh, in SP plus for defense. Yeah, I think everyone can go back to last week's show and heard me rant and rave over the offensive line. I've I've got a similar view on the defense where the the floor here just has to be top twenty. Um, the ceiling is. Top 10, top five. Um, I mean, this really has the chance to be one of the, you know, deepest defenses I can remember in recent memory where you're, you're going into the season and there's just not a question mark. I mean, like we're splitting hairs if you want to be upset about, you know, JD Bertrand being a starter or about Tariq Bracey at nickel. Um, you're splitting hairs if those are your weak spots. And there's so much strength in Foskey and Cam Hart's consistency. And what Brandon Joseph offers for upside and Jack Kaiser just being Mr. Consistent in the middle. Um, it, it just, it's hard to see where this season goes wrong on defense unless if a bunch of injuries pile up. So with that, that's a wrap on our defensive preview. Looking pretty good for the Irish going into this year. We're now going to turn it over to our next segment on the Manti Teo uh, catfishing documentary. And you're also going to walk out of here with a degree from the University of Notre Dame. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. As Brett mentioned, in this next segment, we're going to be covering the Manti Teo documentary that just launched on August 16th. It's called Untold, The Girlfriend Who Didn't Exist. It's a two-episode documentary. Uh, It's on Netflix. Each episode is an hour long, so it's not very long. You can get through it pretty fast. It's actually performing very well on Netflix. From what I've seen, it was ranked in the top three of their, their top 10 for movies, which is a very high level, obviously. Now, for those of our listeners who li- have been living under a rock or weren't somehow missed this whole saga that, that happened back in 2012, Manti had an exceptional senior season. He was a Heisman Trophy finalist. He finished number two. Exceptional year. Notre Dame made it to the national championship. A big part of his storyline was that his grandma and his girlfriend passed away on the same day, and he was using that as as a way to energize his performance and, and his team. It was just a picture-perfect storyline. Now, here's the catch. His his girlfriend was not real. He was being catfished. It was a, a man who was faking the whole thing and essentially scammed him. So this came out in a big Deadspin article. It was this massive ordeal, this huge scandal, and needless to say, makes for a pretty dramatic, crazy story. Brett and I were actually on campus as students when this was going on. Manti was a year older than us. So we were living all of this in real time. So the emotion, the energy, the reaction of the campus at the time, Brett and I were there as this was happening. 
So I was thinking the way that we kick this off, Brett, is how about you kick off with some of your insights that you had from our days as a student on campus, some of the some of the reactions that you remember that you had just living there as this was happening. For sure. It, it's really interesting. I'll actually say as just a plug, everyone should go and watch this if, if you're a Notre Dame football fan. I, I actually had certain views on Manti that changed. We'll, we'll maybe get to what we learned in the documentary or, you know, how we kind of evolved our thinking about the situation. But if, if you remove watching this documentary, you know, at, at the time, it was pretty embarrassing. Um, as a Notre Dame fan, it was embarrassing for Manti, obviously. But I remember thinking, as, as you read the articles, as you read the Deadspin article that came out on it, as you, you know, listened to interviews, it was very clear Manti wasn't in on it. And you, you maybe thought, like, how does this, you know, all-American Heisman finalist have a online girlfriend he's never met like it's kind of weird but you never thought manti was malicious and it turned into such a horrible horrible news cycle to the point where like i moved down to atlanta georgia five years later and every other time someone found out i was from notre dame they'd make lene kakua jokes the fake girlfriend lene and it just lingered for so long it didn't get out of the news cycle it dragged into the nfl draft and so it, it, you know, dragged into just Notre Dame fandom, but specifically for Manti, I remember always having a lot of empathy of like, this guy might be a fool or weird or like, I, like, you know, whatever you want to judge him about that, but he's not a bad person and he's just being thrown under the bus. The other insight that I had from our days on campus was shortly after Lene died, um, Manti actually started dating a real girl. She was in our class at St. Mary's. Um, Alex Del Pilar was her name. She actually did an exclusive interview, I think with People Magazine or US Magazine. Um, you can Google it, go read it. And, and she was actually in the same grade at St. Mary's as, as my wife, um, Anne, official wife of the Garage Talk podcast, Anne. And so I had a pretty interesting lens just from that perspective where Manti went out and partied a lot. Like one of our favorite bars was CJ's. Manti was always at CJ's. He was always talking to girls. He was always, you know, being a college kid. And I'm, I'm not saying that in a bad way, but it was very different than maybe this like shy, you know, soft spoken, very religious, pious Mormon, you know, faith inspired leader that you'd see on TV. And that always conflicted with me a little bit. But it also then kind of made sense that, you know, he had this like fake or not fake, we didn't know it, but like this online girlfriend back home, but then he was still kind of doing his social thing at Notre Dame. Like it kind of added up as you saw that element of it. And and by no means does that mean Manti, you know, is a bad guy. I think by all accounts, he was very loyal to his online girlfriend. And most of this was kind of after she passed away and after he declared for the NFL draft, where he then started going out more. But it was just a very, very different guy that, you know, again, it's not like I was his friend or ever talked to him or knew him, but like this guy that you would see at a bar, he was obviously a gravitational figure on campus as really the leader of the football team that had the most success in a quarter of a century at Notre Dame. Um, he was just this huge persona and he was just kind of a jock and, that, and, and, and in a totally okay way, but was not at all the image that you saw on TV or in interviews. And all of that together with this fake online girlfriend who was actually got like, it, it just was, 
very kind of conflicting, yet at the same time made sense that he'd, you know, kind of be caught up in this situation and had actually not met her because he was frankly too busy going out at CJ's where, where Mike and I were. Um, so that, that's kind of how I remembered on campus of feeling really bad for Manti of what the media and, and really college football fans put him through thinking he's not a bad guy. But also, just like a lot of this, you could kind of see how he got caught up in it. Yeah, that was always my take. I I would see Manti on campus all the time. I, I mean, he I think he lived in Dillon, which was on South Quad. I mean, I would see him at South Dining Hall, South Dining Hall, all the time. I'd see him as Brett said, CJ's. He always had a group of. It wasn't really an entourage, but he always had a group of people just around him at all times. Again, just one of those larger than life figures, but. Opposed, as opposed to other athletes that I would hear about on campus, I never remember hearing anything negative about him. There are sure. athletes, that, there are athletes you hear stuff about. They're doing sketchy stuff. You know, maybe they're not good guys. Manti was someone I never heard anything like that about. And if he, if he was, if he was, if he was doing that stuff, I'm sure I would have heard about it. So by all accounts, my impression of him was that he overall was good, was a good guy, perhaps a little naive. And I think that carries through in the documentary. And he got swept up in this. And I think he, there certainly were red flags that it seems like he was aware of. But if you're in this situation where you're a public figure and it's kind of a weird situation, and, and he was talking about this a lot in the documentary, he didn't really know what to do in a lot of these situations. It's, it's, it's like, okay, should I tell the media that I have this situation with this girlfriend that I've never met before? Like, that's kind of weird. I'll just, I'll just keep it simple and just say that she's my girlfriend. I don't, I don't blame him for that at all. I mean, I think that that, that's probably how most people would react to that situation. And then, and then when it gets dicier, where some of these red flags are coming out a little bit more, it's, it's a question of, do I mention this stuff or do I wait till I get more resolution? And it seemed like there were all these conflicting factors going on. And actually before this article broke, Jack Swarbrick on the documentary was saying that Manti was, he was preparing essentially, uh, a statement like coming out about this information. So he was, he was preparing. It sounds like he was preparing to do so. But I, my take was always that he was someone who overall is a good guy, uh, was a little naive. This was before catfishing was a massive thing anyway. In many ways, this put catfishing on the map, I think. I, I don't For remember sure. hearing that. I don't remember hearing the term catfish before this. There were, there were people who, I remember when this happened, people would be, would tell me, oh, hey, you know that show Catfish on MTV? And my reaction was, who the heck watches MTV nowadays? <laughs> um, but, that's kind of what it was. Like there were some people who were aware of it. I wasn't aware of it certainly. So I, I overall felt I felt bad about it. The energy now. One thing that I do remember on campus, and it was just like it was just a reaction. So I remember when this Deadspin article dropped. It was I believe it was in January, sometime in January. It was, we, yeah, we, 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 were, we, we had we were just gotten back from like to start second semester. It was like second or third week of January. Classes had just started back up. Yeah. We were on camp. I remember being in class. I think it was an econ class I was in. I can't remember for sure, but I remember just, I remember sitting in a lecture hall. I remember just hearing a ping on my phone. I hear, I remember hearing a bunch of pings at the same time. And then everyone all of a sudden starts looking at their phone and everyone just has this confused, everyone just had these confused looks on their face. And it was really like time stopped in that moment. Everyone opened the article, looked at it. And most people's reaction was, this can't, there's no way this can be true. But then as you dove in, it, it clearly was true. And once that settled, I think people were, 
were really, really in shock. Um, it was just hard to believe that this person who was larger than life, that people really, really saw as, you know, almost like a, honestly, almost kind of like a god on campus at that time, was, was kind of duped like this. And, and, and there was some quite, there was a lot of uncertainty at the time. The Deadspin article did not really give him any nuance as a victim. Watching the Netflix doc, doc, I thought one thing that they did really well is that they portrayed him as a victim, which I think is important because he is a victim here. And sure, it's, I'm sure he's, it's something that he's still really embarrassed about, but this is something that can happen. Things like this happen to like very smart people sometimes. There are countless documentaries on Netflix about people getting swept up in scandals and, it's easy to sit back and pick, but when you're, yeah, you know, when you're in these situations where there's a lot of emotion involved and you're thrust in, especially like a public situation, it's hard to really know how you would react in it. And so I can't really, I, I don't really blame Manti at all for it. But the Deadspin article did not do him any nuance. They in fact kind of suggested that maybe he was in on it. So as I mentioned, this uh, I think it was Sports Illustrated. It was, it was one publication. They were rating the most hated athletes, and he was in the top three, which is absurd. He's he really didn't actually do anything that wrong except for maybe not coming clean on it earlier. He uh, was ahead I, of Alex Rodriguez. How is that possible? Yeah. For someone who, by and large, is a good guy. It's just, it, it's, it still kind of boggles my mind to this day, and I, I feel really bad for him. But one, one reaction that I, I did have, and this is, um, well, actually another point I'm going to mention. So I mentioned what the reaction on campus was like. People weren't disbelief. But it had gotten so bad that I remember... Brett and I were both finance people. Brett still works in the more hardcore part of finance. I've since shifted more to more of a strategic role on the corporate side. But Brett and I were both interviewing for uh, investment banking. Although, actually, Brett, I think maybe you had actually already gotten your your, your internship somehow. Um, I don't know where this is going, but I'm, well, I'm excited so what to I'm, hear it. So where I'm going with this, our friend Drew hates when we talk about this stuff. He just – anytime we, <laughs> we talk about finance, he'll just, he'll, just, uh, he'll just tune us out. But when I was interviewing, I legitimately – every single interview I had – they would ask me about the Manti Teo uh, catfishing scandal. And I don't know, in some ways it kind of lightened the mood a little bit. So maybe, I don't know, maybe for my purposes, it was kind of helpful. Like I actually, it made, uh, there was a little bit of back and forth I could have with the interviewee, but interviewer, but I, I was pretty surprised that that was something that people actually would spend time on in the interviews. They'd be asking me all these technical questions. They'd be asking me, uh, you know, questions about my experience. And then they would, without doubt, always leave a little block to ask me about the Manti Teo scandal. So it just kind of shows you how how far this reached. It wasn't even just in the narrow, and it's not even that narrow. It wasn't even just in the in the confines of the college football world. This was, there were people on Dr. Phil. I mean, Dr. Phil was, was, you know, covering this story. It really did sweep the news cycle. Yeah. So it's just this big scandal, and Manti, they didn't portray him in a light that was accurate. And they portrayed him in a way where most of America had a very negative reaction to him. And it, it seems like it's quieted down a bit since then. But I still hear jokes about it now. You go on message boards, people still make jokes about it all the time. I think this Netflix doc, I, I think it, he finally got his side out. And I mean, another element, I mean, another element is there were, I think it also had some details in it that I wasn't aware of. So another, detail or another point that that really stood out to me was just that the timing of when his grandma died and then when Lene died so i didn't realize that naya so so the perpetrator of this scam he was uh he was a man at the time that he was uh essentially scamming teo and he's since come out as a, a transgender uh, woman who goes by the name of naya now so naya at the time 
When she found out that Teo's grandma passed away, it sounds like their relationship was a little bit on the rocks. Maybe this was around the t- this was around the time that Teo's play had really been blown up. He was, he was becoming a a pretty big figure, and so it sounds like he maybe this is around the time that he was starting to flirt with other girls on campus a little bit more. Uh, Naya was getting a little jealous, and then if if you watch the doc, she's talking about when the grandma passed away, how Teo wasn't really confiding in her much at the time. And it seemed like that really struck a nerve. And you combine that, and I'm speculating a little bit here, you combine that with some of these other elements, maybe of jealousy, and then she decided in that moment that that was when Lene was going to die, just to add, kind of adding fuel to the fire. And I was, for me, that just showed how, kind of how ruthless this whole, this whole, this whole hoax was. This man just lost his grandma. And then, and then you're going to essentially kill someone that he cares very deeply about. And he had a really strong reaction. Naya was saying that she could hear on the other side of the phone that Teo was, Pounding walls, throwing stuff. He he was deeply affected by this clearly, and so that that was something that really stood out to me. That that detail because that that was something I didn't know until I watched the documentary. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You kind of transition to a second question here of, you know, one, what did we know as students on campus? But then two, what did we learn in this documentary? And a few things stood out to me. One, you mentioned Naya, who's since transitioned to a, a trans female. None of what I'm about to say absolves what she did. Like what she did was ruthless, cruel, really, really negatively impacted someone's life in a horrible way. But she was clearly struggling, right? And, you know, struggling with her own sexual identity and sounded like some family issues and just a lot going on. And so she was a big part of this documentary. She, she was honestly interviewed as much or more than Manti was in terms of at least the content that was included in the documentary. And so, I thought that was really interesting is, you know, I think obviously she's been portrayed as the villain in this narrative, but clearly she's been going through a lot and and seems like she's in a a better place in her life now. But to your point, really, really, really just like ruthless behavior. I thought another interesting thing was Deadspin wasn't really going after Teo. Like they, they interviewed the two guys that wrote the article. They were trying to expose ESPN and Sports Illustrated and other mainstream media outlets for just terrible journalism, like for not fact-checking any of this. And they were right. They were spot on. But, you know, they would even say that their articles, you know, like they would start getting interviews for writing the article and all the questions they were getting wasn't even about what they were writing about. You know, they were getting questions about Manti Teo's sexuality and his role in it. And they're like, we don't know or care. We just can't believe that the journalism was so bad covering college football for the last four months, but it just, even they would say that the narrative went away. I thought two other things just about Manti getting catfished. I always thought, like, how could you fall for it? Like, how could you fall for this? And and they were going through this segment where Lene allegedly had cancer um, and then had separately gotten a car accident and was on life support and was for months. So for months and months and months, Manti would call this person who would just like breathe heavily and not be able to speak. And then before or at the, you know, at the beginning or end of the call, a like quote unquote nurse, which was allegedly this Naya pretending to be a nurse, come on and be like, oh my gosh, like, you know, she just blinked or she was just responsive or she's just something she hasn't done before. Like Manti, you're making such a big difference. Keep calling her. And I was kind of like, how do you do that for months and months and months and then just like not go visit in the off season or something? And then, you know, all of these just like other things going on. 
But they started talking about it. Like, Naya started talking about the things she did to cover it up where um, she, who was actually a guy at the time, would, like, pretend to be um, Lene's brother or cousin or uncle. Um, she got her actual, like, nephew to go and, like, talk to Manti at this meetup about, you know, Aunt Lene. And it was, like, it, it was so elaborate where, like, going into the documentary, I was like, how do you fall for this? And watching the documentary, I, I probably flipped my script on that a little bit. And I was like, I still don't really know how you fall for it, but it was elaborate. Like, this wasn't just some, like, Facebook messaging back and forth. Like, there were physical meetups with other characters and other phone calls and, like, getting other people in on verifying it that was – like, it made it more believable that Manti – in a long distance relationship in the early or like keep in mind folks like I, I don't know tinder didn't exist back then right or if it did it was maybe just started uh, but certainly online dating isn't what it is today and so i think all of those things made it more believable that like he wasn't just some gullible person it made it more like yeah this maybe could happen to me too like i like i don't know like maybe the last thing i'll say is were they actually boyfriend girlfriend? That that is one lingering question I have from this entire documentary. Where clearly he was talking to this girl online. Um, you know they they had public tweets about each other, and we were kind of lovey dovey and clearly flirtatious, whatever. But there wasn't anything out there like it was. You know they even interviewed one of Manti's high school teammates and college teammates, Robbie Toma, also from Hawaii, um, who was then a wide receiver in Notre Dame. About his perspective, it was like, yeah, Manti like, keeps talking to this girlfriend. Or, sorry, keeps talking to this girl, but never said girlfriend. Or, you know, even, like, the tweets and the messages they would show and the Facebook things back and forth was never, like, really felt like they were boyfriend-girlfriend, which makes sense that they wouldn't have been boyfriend-girlfriend um, during, you know, this long-distance relationship without meeting. And then she dies, and then she becomes his girlfriend. And and I'm I'm extrapolating that a little bit, right? Like maybe they were already dating. And I was always like kind of thinking that a little bit. But it was really fascinating that you have this guy who's very vulnerable when his grandmother dies and then finds out the same day at least some girl he's been, you know, having a long distance relationship with, whether or not they were formally dating or not. It doesn't really matter if they were boyfriend or girlfriend, but as soon as the media heard about it, they weren't going to say his grandma and his other friend from Facebook. They were going to say his girlfriend. And so then you started hearing it in interview after interview, and they, they showed a bunch of these interviews. He kept being asked, like, what, you know, what did your girlfriend mean to you? Like, it was a very leading question. And I think he just kind of got caught up in it, and he was clearly in a very emotional place with his grandmother on top of it that – that that whole thing kind of came together where that's the one part that I think really snowballed on Manti that made him come out in maybe a more negative light to just the broader public was that it really felt like after she died, the relationship became a much bigger part of his life. But he was getting interviewed by like ESPN every week for an entire football season. Like it just kept coming up and coming up and coming up. And so – Watching this documentary again, I it gave it, this maybe goes to your last question of how's your view on Manti change. It made me much more empathetic 
of the situation Manti was in and, and not even, I've sort of moved away from thinking like, wow, what a naive gullible guy. I feel bad this happened to him to just drop the naive part. Wow. Like I just feel bad for this guy that he's put in this situation. Yeah. I think that's where I'm at right now. I think, I think the details on how this hoax came together were, were pretty critical. You, you hit it a lot of them, but there were, there were multiple characters in, involved in this. And a lot of these characters were loosely connected to people that he actually knew in real life. And he would talk to these, these, uh, you know, for the people that he knew in real life, he would ask them, he'd be, he would say, Hey, do you know, do you know Lene? And a lot of these people would say, Yes, I know Lene. So he was getting confirmation. And they would leave out that they only knew Lene online, but they would just exactly. say, yeah, I know her. And he'd exactly. Go, okay. Yeah, I'd be like, all right, I have I have multiple people who've confirmed that Lene is real. Uh, her cousin, uh, it's like, oh, I I know her cousin, right? And the cousin showed up with the niece, and he physically met them in person. Of course, the cousin was actually Lene. Um, so you have all these things going on, and I'm sure. I mean, it sounds like he was aware of these red flags. It sounds like he wasn't totally oblivious to it. But it seems like whenever he had these questions, it seems like there was a way that they kind of addressed it to make him buy into it. So I don't think my, that was, that, that was another takeaway is he was, he didn't have blinders on the whole time. It seems like he did have some skepticism at different parts throughout this, but each time he was reassured through some ruse or some confirmation from someone. And it's hard to believe that something like this could happen to someone. But when you see all the details, Brett, like you said, I think it makes it scarier. It makes me feel really bad for him because the possibility of this happening to anyone feels very real. It's, uh, I would say certainly catfishing is now on people's radar much more than it was back then. But back then, if there's someone that seems like a perfect significant other for you, you're probably going to overlook a few things. You can probably get comfortable with certain things and, and have a little bit of wishful thinking. And it's easy to see where he gets in this, in this position. Now on your point on the girlfriend, it, I agree. It didn't seem like they were technically boyfriend, girlfriend, most of the time that they were talking. However, I don't really blame him for essentially labeling it that way because this is someone who is clearly very important to him, someone who he had feelings for similar to the feelings that someone would have for a girlfriend. So she passed away, obviously, and then when that happened, he reacted how someone would typically react if their girlfriend passed away. And I don't really know what you're going to say. I think he probably was just, just for sake of simplicity, he just called. he probably just called her. His girlfriend. And, and, and maybe mean, they were boyfriend girlfriend. Like the documentary didn't really go into that. It just kind of struck me watching it, right? So yeah, take that as a grain of salt. But it, I, I became more empathetic, or not empathetic, but yeah. sympathetic um, to, to Manti in that kind of post Lene's fake death time period. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, I I don't really blame him for that. I think it's I mean, what is he going to say? Oh, this this girl that I just talked to online passed away. I think it's that's just that's just like that's a lot of extra details. I feel like it's way easier to just say, oh yeah, it's, it's my girlfriend. And then who would have? There's no way he would have expected that it would have snowballed like this. I don't think anyone would have. Certainly not even Naya, who's who's perpetrating the hoax. She certainly didn't expect it to snowball like this. So. But yeah, I think it's just once the media kind of grabbed hold of that and then everyone just got this image of Manti and, and this girl and they kind of made it something that I don't know that Manti had initially really said that it was. They, they kind of portrayed it in a way that it seemed like this perfect 
relationship. And, um, and it clearly was not, as we found out when the, when the, when the hoax came out, um, it clearly was, uh, was not. It was, it was fake. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the last thing I'd observed too of that I think made him kind of a target of the public and the media, um, and kind of vilified him a little bit was, he knew for about a month before the dead deadspin article came out. So apparently in the first week of December, um, Lene or Naya basically called him back and said, Hey, I actually faked my death. I'm not dead. And then Manti was like, come on and went to Notre Dame. And that's where Jack Swarbrick kind of got involved. They ran an investigation. They found out she was fake. He then goes to the Heisman trophy ceremony and is interviewed about it. And Reese Davis, they, they had film in the documentary. Reese Davis asks him a question. So we now know Manti knew about it. Reese Davis on national television asks him what it was like, you know, playing for his grandmother or girlfriend. And he talks about both of them. He says girlfriend again, after now knowing the girlfriend didn't exist. This is now dawning over him while we go to the national championship game where he has his worst game of the season by far. And everyone always wants to say, like, oh, would have Notre Dame beat Alabama if, you know, Manti Teo hadn't been a strike? Guys, stop. It was 42 to 14. And Eddie Lacy destroyed us regardless of Manti's three missed tackles. Like, it didn't matter whether or not Manti had a good game, bad game, ugly game. Notre Dame was going to get walloped. Would have maybe been 28-14 or 35-14. I don't know. Who cares? We got pummeled. Move on from that. Bama was an all-time great team in 2012. But... He's preparing for national championship. He's going through this Heisman Trophy ceremony. And then after the national championship game, so we're talking like five, six weeks later, then the Deadspin article breaks. And it then comes out to the public that Manti at least knew for some period of time and was not unveiling it. And and that's a really interesting question of like, why didn't Manti come out earlier and just say, hey, I got hoaxed? I'll be honest though, he's like a 20 year old kid. You're hoping maybe no, like this just eventually blows over and it never comes up again. Like I, I don't know. Like if anything, it's kind of like Jack Swarbrick and Notre Dame and, you know, people talking in his life. And like, I know he's getting consulted by investigators and PR consulting firms and everything else, but why was no one else around this guy thinking, Dude, Manti, if you don't come out with this story, imagine how much worse it will be. And maybe someone was saying that and he was scared and nervous and was, you know, in the documentary, they kind of talk about him thinking about it and was getting ready with what his statement was. But that just felt like there were other people in his life where it was like, dude, you don't get three weeks to think about this. You get 24 hours or you're really risking a major PR nightmare I don't think anyone could have foresaw what that PR nightmare became, but that was one of my other takeaways where they kind of interviewed Swarbrick who came off as, yeah, I was helping him through the investigation. And it was like, but then you didn't get him to actually disclose this ahead of Deadspin and the rest of the media going off on him. I thought that was the other part of this narrative that maybe isn't getting talked enough about of the support system around Manti letting him down in managing the crisis yeah that's true that's a point i hadn't really thought about until you just mentioned it here brett but had they swarbrick said that he was in the process of potentially saying something about it who knows that that's something that you could just say there's no way of verifying that but had he come out and gotten in front of it i think 
the skepticism, there would certainly still be skepticism, but I think the vast skepticism that he was potentially in on it, I don't think that that would have been as, as big a factor. Certainly, it's, it would have been a very embarrassing situation for him, but I, I just think that element where everyone thought he was just lying to the media and just hamming up the situation to try to get sympathy and win a Heisman, I, I think if he if he was the one who came out about it, I think a lot of that element is, is certainly diminished at a least at the least. Yeah, and uh, maybe, maybe the scandal doesn't maybe it doesn't stick as much. Maybe. I mean, I would imagine it, it still would have been a big story no matter what, just because the storyline was 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 so so massive during the season, like his play, the Heisman. There's no way it wouldn't have been a big story, but I think the the reaction maybe would have been. I think maybe people would have gotten to a point of empathy a little bit faster with this. Um, and it's a, it's a shame that it's taken this long. It's really it's been like ten years, and it feels like only now are people really starting to feel bad for him. Um, Sorry, la- last thing, and and then we we should move on. You just mentioned it's been ten years. I sneaky enjoyed, and I know, and the official wife of the Guyish Talk podcast one hundred percent enjoyed all of those scenes from that season, and they almost got tarnished. Like even as we were watching it, I was watching with my wife, and I was like, oh, like I just get like this, like almost like just negative reaction in my mouth. And she was like, like just, you know, seeing these images and remembering this time of Bama destroying us and Manta. And she's like, really? Like, that was the greatest season ever. And so from the first episode to the second episode, I kind of switched my mental mindset, like seeing that game against Michigan, seeing the Stanford goal line stand, um, you know, like seeing the, I, I remember we all wore lays. We, we wore lays in the stadium, in the student section to support Manti and just went nuts. Like it was yeah. such a great, like, and I can't believe that was 10 years ago now. That makes me feel really, really old in, in my thirties. But, um, it did bring back a lot of really good memories as a Notre Dame fan, despite one of the most absurd storylines of all time. Yeah. No, it, it was a great season. That was one of the most fun. I mean, that was the most fun football season that we had when I was there. And it was one of the most fun elements of, of being a college student when I was there. So it, it did bring back those good memories. It's too bad that there is that that taint. But I think overall, it, the, those memories were so strong. They were so, so, so positive, so, so fun that um, for me, that, that still wins the day. The, the last point I'm going to make here and then I'm going to wrap this up is, so with Manti, I think one thing that I was just struck with what, in terms of impact and how this affected him was that, he mentioned that football was his happy. He essentially said football was his happy place. He would play free. It was a place that he would go and he could just um, go off. Basically, he could just kind of be himself. He felt there was no place he felt more comfortable than on the football field. But then once this scandal hit, it, it, it completely flipped on him, and it was a place of stress. He he was talking about when he was playing for the Chargers. Before every snap, he would be freaking out, thinking, "Oh no, what if I what if I screw up on this snap?" So. It really is. I think that just speaks to the impact on him, and and for me, that just magnified how bad I felt for him. This place that was such a uh, a place of safety, a place of comfort for him. This whole scandal took that from him, and he, it doesn't seem like he ever got it back. And that, in many ways, that kind of broke my heart a little bit, just because I think for me that really hit home how significant this impact was on his life. Now, we could we could talk about this all day. This was uh, this is this is obviously a pretty big topic, and this was a big element of. A big moment for us when we, we were on campus. We lived through it, but we're going to move on to the next topic, and, and this is a classic topic that we continually have, and that's four horses. I wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad to prove to everyone prove that I worked. What? So, what we're going to do this week 
is we're going to predict the four defensive players on the roster with the highest pro football focus grades at season end. So, Brett, I'm going to hand it off to you, and I'll let you kick off with with your first pick. Yeah, I'm looking through this, and I've got three very obvious answers, and then I'm really not sure about the fourth spot, so I'm glad I get to go first, so so you have to go fourth. Um, I'm going to start off with Jack Kaiser. Um, Maybe a little bit more under the radar. Probably not your All-American type talent. He was, again, as a reminder, number 416 recruit in his class. But he was absolutely Mr. Solid last year. Had a pro football focus grade of 80. That was the highest in our front seven. Second highest on the defense behind DJ Brown, who was more of the Kyle Hamilton backup, um, who played for most of the season. But it sounds like he actually might be a backup again this year. So Brown might not even be a starter. So of the starters coming back, Jack Kaiser was our highest graded defensive player. So I'm going to start with him. And he did that, I believe, as an underclassman. He's a junior this year. Not sure if he's a junior senior. Um, and I said it earlier, was third in the country in tackling rate among linebackers. When he was the primary defender in coverage, QBs had a QB rating of 35. Um, an average QB rating is like in the low 100, right around 100. 35 is like, you are terrible quarterback. So when he was in coverage, when he was tackling, he was just a fundamentally sound linebacker roaming the middle. Um, I think he continues to build on that again and, and is going to be one of our highest graded defenders by year end. Yeah, I think that's a good pick. For me, I think I'm going to go with a more obvious choice here, and that's Isaiah Foskey. We, we, we talked about him earlier in the show. Um, he's someone who a lot of scouts, a lot of pundits, a lot of people who have NFL mock drafts, they have him in the first round. So he's shown a lot of potential at times. He's flashed a lot of potential. He's been very productive at times. But it doesn't quite match up with some of the, the stats that we've seen. So as we mentioned, potential high-end NFL talent, a lot are saying a first-round pick. Uh, but his pro football focus grade, while good, is not quite as high as you would expect from a, from a first round pick, but you mentioned it was 79. It's a high end starter. That's not really what you would expect from a, from a first round pick. His, uh, his hurry rate isn't quite as high as you would, you would think for someone who's potentially a first round pick, but I do think the potential that he's shown at times, I think overall throughout his career, he's gotten more consistent each year. He's gotten a little bit better. I, I expect him to take another jump this year. And I expect him to really be that impact defensive lineman this year that we've, we've been waiting for. He was, again, he was impactful last year, but I'm expecting him this year to really have one of those banner years and play, play himself into a first round pick. So I'm going with Foskey. I think he's going to make that jump. I think he's going to be the best player on the defense for us this year. Um, so again, more of an obvious pick, but, uh, I don't think, I don't think you can knock anyone for, uh, for picking Foskey, uh, as, as a potential top player on the defense this year. By the way, he went from having one sack his sophomore year to 10 last year. So he's at 11, um, or no, sorry, um, he's got more than that. He had 11 sacks last year. That was third most in a single season. Um, I'm not sure what he's at for his career, but I do know that the career leader is Justin Tuck at 24 and a half. So um, if uh, Isaiah Foskey continues you know, to put up another 11 sack season, he is knocking on the door of most career sacks in Notre Dame history. I tend to think sacks are misleading stat. We've talked about that a lot. Um, they, they can mask double teams or overall pressure you're generating and havoc you're generating, but on a, you know, pretty 
big all-time career stat. He's he's right up there with the best of them. Um, the next player that I'm going with, I actually think is a pretty obvious choice, although someone I don't even know if we've mentioned yet is Jason Adamalola. Um, really going into his senior year, a lot of people thought he might go to the NFL and maybe it would have been a fourth, fifth round draft pick. He came back. He's trying to play himself up to a second or third round draft pick. He was the number 128 recruit in his class about four or five years ago now. So high end four star talent. He was actually second on the team last year in sacks with five and led the team in hurries. He uh, had 27 quarterback hurries. So maybe didn't get home on nearly as many sacks as Foskey did, but was consistently generating more pressure. And because of that, he graded out um, 78 in pro football focus. That was second on the defensive line. Um, I believe third or fourth overall on defense. So I don't know if he's necessarily going to be an All-American or a first-round draft pick, but when it comes to grading, he's already established a floor. He's established his floor to 78. He's established that he's a high-end starter for this defense. And if he elevates at all, um, he has a chance to really go from high-end to elite. I don't know if the ceiling's there, but just because he set such a high floor, I'm, I'm going to put him on this list at number three. Yeah, I think that's a good pick. I think... I think he's a pretty safe bet for a top top four pro football focus grade by by the end of the year. I, I'd be surprised if he if he isn't. He's just you know exactly what you're getting with him, and it's it's a, a high end starter. Maybe not a first round pick, but someone who's going to play really well. So for my last pick, I'm going to go with the theme of potential first round talent. So I'm going with Brandon Joseph, and we were debating a little bit whether or not the expectations that he's receiving this year in terms of him getting back to that all American level. Are fair, or if maybe it's a little overhyped. So as, as we mentioned, he was exceptional as a freshman, All-American, really surged onto the scene, then really took a step back his, his second year. So I think, again, I don't know. I, my initial impression is Northwestern probably didn't really set him up to succeed super well. Freshman year, no one had any tape on him. He was able to take teams by surprise a little bit. Sophomore year, teams were aware of him. They could isolate his impact a bit. There aren't a ton of other people on that Northwestern defense that you had to really plan around. They essentially could plan around him and shut shut his impact down. Now that he's on a Notre Dame defense that's very talented throughout, doesn't really have any weaknesses, you can't do that with him. And, and this guy is a ball hawk. So, And apparently throughout camp, he's been demonstrating that ability over and over again. He's been getting a lot of interceptions. He's just constantly around the ball. I think he's going to have a really good year for us. I think he's going to create a lot of disruption. I think he's going to help the havoc rate. I think he's going to get some interceptions for us. And I think he's going to play himself back into that conversation of being a, a first round pick. He's already in that conversation, but again, there's a little, you know, there's some skepticism. There's some reason to doubt. And I think that's fair. Again, he didn't have a great year, his sophomore year, but I, th- I think he plays and gets back to that level. Love it. That's a wrap for the show. We got one more um, off-season show, although the next one will be very, very focused on the Ohio State game. We'll do our Ohio State preview. And with that, uh, the show's a wrap. Guy Rish. Guy Rish.